Marcus Marcus controls the power and wealth of a vast military and religious empire. Yet one horrific crime threatens to destroy everything in his world. Addled by drugs and grief, Marcus Marcus begins a trans-dimensional journey that will ultimately force him to confront a dark and devastating truth. Chapter 11 The Beautiful Abomination Another five days passed before I spoke again with my royal companion. I did see her one day walking quietly in one of my estate's ornamental gardens but she seemed preoccupied so I chose not to disturb her. I could guess what she was thinking about for on returning from that rain-salt mountain village, I had signed the documents granting Gath full security clearance. It was not quite a marriage proposal, but it was a clear statement of intent. Gath was now free to explore the entirety of my palace complex and surrounding grounds, as was fitting for a royal companion and future princess. She was now free to look around the entirety of my abode. The galleries, halls, administration block, storerooms, living quarters and every nook and cranny inside the palace itself and likewise explored outside woodlands, fields, lakes, temples, shrines, gazebos, bothies, sheds, mazes and pathways. If she fancied, she could explore the seldom-used rendition and termination pits. Her clearance was absolute. And when I received word from her requesting a meeting, I guessed that one of the topics for discussion would no doubt be all the wonders she had beheld. Wonders that lesser eyes were barred from viewing. We met early and shared breakfast and morning prayers. After the palace servants returned to their tasks, Gath and I made our way out into the gusty spring freshness. Being early yet, Fierna and Tayini, the twin stars of the Enfeshka system, were still indulging in their morning embrace. Low in the sky they hung, like one great glittery, misshapen fruit. As Gath and I walked along a path, bordered with young, swaying, rustling trees. When the path split, Gath took the route that led towards the Queen's Temple. As we walked, I recalled that the Queen of the Universe, the Mother Goddess herself, once visited this very temple. Of course, that was many millennia ago, when deities were expected to make temporal visits. Now they mostly stay on the divine earth, content to watch over us from a distance, perhaps out of respect for our increasing maturity, or perhaps because they're too busy doing whatever it is immortal beings do of an eternity. I asked Gath what she thought about this, but she did not seem to notice my words. 
After a few more minutes, I tried another approach. Have you been exploring? I asked, my voice a little louder. Yes, came her reply. See anything interesting? Yes. I smiled encouragingly. Gath smiled back, but it was not one of her big smiles. Prior to becoming Chief Medical Administrator of the Peninsula, Gath had spent eight years working as a cardiologist in the medical wing of the largest almshouse in Stone City. When I took over my inheritance a short quarter century ago, any kind of efficient medical care was the preserve of the lords of the peninsula, who controlled the land and its four million inhabitants on behalf of my family. With my arrival, things changed. I ended the corrupt autonomy of the nobles and reasserted direct control. Whilst there had been fierce and bloody resistance to my becoming Prince and Glake, in the peninsula, opposition was limited to old, arrogant, spiteful men who hated each other too much to unite against me. As for their offspring, cold cash cancelled debts and positions of influence in the new regime helped assuage their concerns. Those few, very few, stubborn, recalcitrant individuals who continued to oppose me were defeated by the use of threats, blackmail and the occasional extra-judicial execution. Not that I was untroubled, by such rare killings. One of the first acts of my new regime was to change the laws covering capital crimes. The lords of the peninsula had a very simple approach to killing people. A person was allowed to execute another person without trial provided the convicted person's income was less than 10% of the prosecutor. I replaced this with a system that necessitated a full examination of facts and witnesses. Whilst this was laudable, the delay caused by trials threatened to undermine the early years of my regime, when fast results were needed. Whilst my approach to justice occasionally wobbled, there was no doubt in my commitment to ending the barbarism involved with judicial executions. The great lords killed people in public, There was no village so small that it did not have its own rendition and termination pit. Under my new laws, all the pits were filled in, with the exception of the one beside my palace complex. That pit, one of the oldest, was unique in that it was underground, having been constructed for private viewing and select audiences only. The manner of killing was also subject to regulation. The lords of the peninsula had a wealth of techniques and instruments for ending a human life. Peeling, cutting, tightening, inserting. By way of compromise and the respect of tradition, I allowed the ancient ways of killing to remain on the statute books. 
but in practice death was now by a single bullet to the back of the skull. As well as changes to the judiciary, I improved education and health in my personal fiefdom. In Glaik, such changes were impossible given the thick and thorny entanglement of overlapping jurisdictions, laws and customs held as sacrosanct by innumerable personages in positions of secular and religious authority. But in the smaller peninsula, my authority was absolute and my demands readily assented to. Gath had been taught in the new public school system, won a scholarship to study in Stone City University and then over time became a leading heart specialist in the almshouse, which provided her with a ready supply of grateful patients to treat and corpses to examine and ponder over. Her arrival in my palace complex coincided with the arrival of other young men and women who owed their education, positions and security to the system I had set up. Or rather, if I am to be honest about it, to the system my vizier set up. Gaath had been appointed chief medical administrator of the peninsula and soon proved her worth as both administrator and promoter of medical innovations. But it was her laughter that kept my heart and body content. Her quick and easy wit radiated out from her like a beautiful warm and warming light. But not now. Now her smile was tepid and slight. She said little, just sucked at her lips and kept on walking. After twenty minutes or so of windy silence, we came to the low mesh fence that surrounded the consecrated lake. Do you really believe the swans can tell the future? Gath asked me. Not now, I replied, raising a hand to point. Not since he was born. In the middle of the water there was an island, nothing more than a small hump of land patched work with grass and mossy rock and prickled with ancient wind-sculpted oak and beech trees. Surrounding the island were the sacred swans, dipping up and down on the water. Twenty of the birds were of the purest white, twenty of the purest black. But there, off to the left by itself, was a strange, beautiful, abomination of a creature. For a moment we could see only its black side, but, as if aware of our gaze, it turned slowly to face us. Beside me I heard Gath draw in a deep, slow breath. The swan stretched out its wings, the left a shiny ebony, the right a glittering icy white. Though I had seen the creature many times, I was still struck by how its form was perfectly divided between darkness and light. Not one white feather flecked its black side, 
nor one black marred the white. Its pale eyes stared out from a face that was as sinister as the black and white mask of some sick in the soul midnight reveller. Pity about its name, I said. I mean, why call the creature nameless? My attempt at levity failed. Gath turned to look at me, her forehead wrinkled into a deep frown. What else could they name it? There are names for white swans, and names for black. There's never been a black and white swan, so, she said with a shrug. What else could they call it? But nameless. You talked to the augurs? I asked. I did, said Gath, turning to look at me. And they explained everything. I think so, said Gath. But what they said was a little difficult to grasp. Something about the resonance of the placement of each creature giving a translatory potential into the future. She smiled then. And it was good to see it, warm and open. I just nodded, she continued, her smile growing wider, and thanked them for their time. It means, I explained, that before Nameless hatched, there were certain designated dates when, at very precise times, the position of the black and white swans in the lake could give a clue to what the future held. It was a very serious business. To avoid any possible mistakes, the birds' positions were observed by eye, measured by laser, recorded by satellite, you name it. And it worked? asked Gath, looking doubtful. Well, I said diplomatically, the augurs have been on this estate for over 1,200 years, and over time their institution has spread all over the planet. Their knowledge of politics, economics, society, the whims and the dynamics of the lords of the peninsula is formidable. So they made good guesses. I took my time thinking of an answer. The augurs were based on my land and daily swore an oath of loyalty to my family. Yet I'd always been aware of their independence and creepy self-assuredness. Personally, I thought they were a bunch of smug bastards. But smug bastards, it would do well not to offend. All I can say for sure is that Estella consulted them, still does, and Estella has never failed me. But even as I spoke, it occurred to me that my security chief had been a little fraught of late, more acerbic than usual. So what does Estella think? About the bird? asked Gath. She doesn't like it, I said. But there's many things my security chief doesn't like. I tried to laugh, but only managed a clumsy, choking cough. Truth was, Estella hated the creature, hated it and feared it. 
The augurs had a convocation, I explained, to discuss the swan. They respect Estella, so she was invited to speak. She gave her opinion. Others gave theirs. There was a debate. A big debate. I rolled my eyes, gave Gath a big smile, wanting to move the conversation on. But Gath wasn't for moving. Tell me about it, she said, a serious look on her. It was a long, long discussion. Trust me, I had to preside over it. Why? Tradition, I said. Bloody tradition dictated I should preside, and bloody tradition dictated that augurs from Uncross and Feshka had to come to discuss the matter. I took a breath, tried to control the irritation scratching away inside me. All agreed, I continued, that the creature was strange, maybe even terrible, and that its presence made divination more complex, if not near impossible. I looked at Gath, but she said nothing. Doesn't matter how many satellites and lasers you have, I explained. How can you use the swans to read the future when one of them is a creature that if taken as black would suggest one eventuality, but if taken as white would suggest an entirely different outcome? Gath nodded, sucked on her lip and said, I can understand that. I gave her no time to add anything more. I was on a roll now, could even remember whole phrases from the convoking. One augur said it was best to destroy the swan, because if it stopped us taking a reading on the future, we'd never be able to break from the chains of the past. Another augur insisted it was the ignorance of those chains that there was the problem. We leap forward, but the unseen chains yank us back. Perhaps the swan would force us to take time to look at the past, try to uproot those chains. Yet another augur insisted that the very complexity the swan introduced would make any insight gained all the deeper. Then this other guy, well, he had a whole other take on things. Gath put a finger on my mouth and I stopped talking. It was not easy. My heart was beating faster and a full rant was getting ready to erupt from me. You make it sound stupid and dull, she said, but I wish I had been there. I would have found the discussion fascinating. Her voice had such an earnest quality to it that my rant died. I felt embarrassed, even guilty. I really wish I could tell you more, I said, but I can't remember much after the opening debates. This was true enough. As the tedious hours of the great convoking ached and crawled into interminable days, I only managed to stay awake and reasonably coherent by wiping my eyes with a handkerchief imprinted with an amphetamine and cannabis cocktail. I had sat there, surrounded by augurs, some mere children, others far into the nodding, giggling darkness of second babyhood, many shouting and threatening, 
whilst others sat weeping and pleading, with all manners of oratorical excess, ballooning up or bursting apart, thinking to myself, this is not all that far removed from some of the parties I've hosted. A little less clothing and a bit more music and it would be difficult to tell the difference. Penny for your thoughts, spoke Gath, breaking into my reverie. They seem to be pleasant ones. Oh, I said, just thinking about how wonderful it is to be out in the fresh air with you and all your remarkable questions. Thanks for listening to the latest chapter of Marcus Marcus and Hurting Heart. Be sure to tell all your friends, family and ancient enemies about the story. If you like it, rate it, review it, pass on the word and subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Player or your favourite podcast app. Drop me a line on Twitter at Havering Rab. And if you want to know more about what I do, check out my website, rabfultonstories.weebly.com.